Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, the Health, Medicine, and Bioscience Edition. Uh, It's my job to find the best of the best, the tops in their fields, the geniuses, and bring them to you, the listener. I've interviewed uh, over 2,000 researchers, clinicians, uh, et cetera, and scientists. So I have Evan Lee today. He's on the faculty at Baylor College. Uh, He works with immunology and allergy. Uh, so, Evan, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Thanks, Richard. I'm doing great. Well, good. Tell me about your, your specialty. Is it um, allergies for children, for adults, for everyone? I mean, what's, you know, what's your work about? Uh, well, you know, allergy is a very interesting field. Um, you know, when uh, people think of allergies, they typically think of uh, young children you know, with peanut allergies or asthma. But um, actually, uh, many adults... Um, have allergy, exact same type of uh, allergic condition that children have. Um, the pattern is a little bit different from kids to adults, but for the most part, uh, people of all ages can have uh, various food allergies to nuts, peanuts or tree nuts, uh, cow's milk, uh, dairy product or things. Um, airway conditions like a hay fever or what we call allergic rhinitis, uh, asthma. Uh, people have a lot of skin conditions like eczema hives, and even uh, allergies to everyday items like cosmetics or medication. Uh, so what we deal with uh, are the diagnosis um, of these conditions and in some cases the treatment of these. Uh, so that's basically just a, a gist of uh, what an allergist does. So when someone has allergies, that's considered a proper immune response or is it overboard? What's, how do you, what's the fine line there? That's actually um, a very good question. And um, it's still very much uh, a mystery in this case. And, you know, you talk about whether or not it's a proper immune response. So the immune response is probably necessary um, evolutionarily wise. Uh, For instance, if um, a person has, let's say, eczema or asthma, oftentimes we will see that they have elevated levels of a certain type of immune cell that we call eosinophils. And that's just a a subset of the immune system. The immune system has many different cells. Eosinophils just happens to be one of them. In normal individuals without allergies, we have very low amounts of eosinophils in our blood and our tissues, but they're there for a reason. They help fight off fungal infections. They help fight off parasitic infections like ring, uh, not ringworm, but like certain parasitic worms uh, that you might get. not so much of a problem in uh, the Western world, uh, but definitely in Asia, South Central America, Africa. It's very good and very beneficial to have a healthy supply of eosinophils to help fight off these parasitic infections. Now, for some reason in allergic individuals, these eosinophils are maybe overactive or you have an elevated amount and they can, you know, the things that they release to help kill off parasitic infections are also damaging tissue as well, and that sometimes manifests as allergic. So, you know, the immune mechanisms that are involved in allergic reactions 
are necessary, um, but in people with allergic uh, they may be uh, an augmented phenotype, as we would say, uh, that leads to the symptoms of allergies. So um, what about the, uh, the microbiome? Has that been implicated in modulating allergic reactions? Has it been looked at? There's a lot of work currently going on in this field, and we there's a lot of data, a lot of people working on it. It's a hot topic. Um, all I can say is right now, you know, the data is far from being conclusive. Um, you know, the microbiome is very important for not only uh, allergic conditions, but it's been heavily implicated in certain types of cancers, other inflammatory conditions like uh, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease or um, uh, ulcerative colitis. Um, and and the, the, the way that the microbiome currently has been looked at in allergies is that perhaps our overuse of antibiotics is killing off proper gut microbiome. It's populating with alternative microbes that shouldn't be there. And it can make uh, our intestines perhaps more leaky than it should. And that leakiness may lead to uh, abnormally high exposure um, of, of the blood to the food antigens that we consume that are present in the intestine. And that allows for hypersensitivity and that may manifest as food allergies in certain individuals. Uh, certainly this been hypothes hypothesized to be true for other allergic conditions as well, such as asthma um, and uh, you know, other conditions like eczema as well. But like I said, uh, this area is far from being conclusive, um, but it's heavily researched. Uh, a lot of the data that come out are controversial, conflicting in certain cases. So uh, we'll, we'll know a little bit more a few years down the line. But uh, yes, this is definitely uh, one of the hot topics right now. Well, what's the uh, specific focus of your work? Is it, is it clinical? Is it research? Is it both? Uh, I do, well, my current position is uh, mostly clinical. I just transitioned from a research position. Uh, so I, I completed my internal medicine residency training. After that, I did a clinical fellowship in allergy. And then after that, I did a three-year research fellowship where it was uh, about 75% research-based, where I was working in the laboratory and doing clinical research as well. And now this new job... Uh, has me doing mostly clinical work, but I still am working on continuing a lot of the projects I did when I was on my clinical fellowship. Uh, my main focus, my research focus actually, is uh, the role of uh, fungus in driving allergic. I work with uh, my mentor, uh, Dr. David Corey, who is um, previously the section chief of allergy and immunology, current chief of uh, allergy and immunology at the VA as well. And there's a large body of work coming out of his lab um, that have really definitively proven that uh, the persistence of fungus in people's airways, the sinuses and the lungs actually drive allergic inflammation, makes the people more allergic to pollens in the airs that can drive uh, the effect, the, uh, the symptoms of seasonal allergy and asthma. So we do a lot of work in diagnosing this fungal infection uh, in these patients and treating this fungal infection with oral antifungal agents. And we've had good success in treating our um, by putting them on uh, oral antifungals, something that um, very few practices do and something that we hope 
uh, to spread the message on, and um, we hope that more and more people start utilizing this, um, this very valuable uh, technique in treating asthma. Where, do, where does the average person run into fungi everywhere? Are they breeding them in in their home, or I mean, where's, yeah. is there a predominance where people are more exposed? So that's a very good question. Uh, so fungus is ubiquitous; it's everywhere. Um, there's very few places on earth where you won't actually find fungus, perhaps the desert or maybe somewhere in the Arctic or, you know, the South pole, those areas are very, um, uh, I guess, hostile to fungus, but overall, if there, you know, is a warm weather at any part of the year, there will be fungus and they may grow dormant during the winter time where I work, um, in Houston and part of the Gulf coast, um, you know, some of the most humid uh, climates uh, in the world. Uh, fungus is just, uh, just, I guess, a way of life. You know, almost everybody is breathing in large amounts of fungal spores on a day-to-day basis. Even in the winter times, you know, we've had a pretty warm winter this year. The temperatures have barely dipped below the 40s and with pretty good humidity. So the fungus, at least this year in Houston, hasn't. Really. Um, and how most people get exposed is just you know, being outside. And there's different funguses that pop out outside. If you open your windows or the door to the outside, they come into the home and they persist there as well. And while they don't typically cause a life-threatening infection that would otherwise kill an immune-compromised individual, um, in certain susceptible individuals, they will present the sinuses, in the lungs, in the gut, and cause a type of, you know, a low-level infection that may not even have the typical symptoms of an infection. But in these individuals, this infection manifests as the symptoms of hay fever and asthma. And right now, most allergists and doctors treat these symptoms with allergy pills like antihistamines and steroids without actually addressing the underlying problem, which is the fungus that's growing and persisting in a person's airway. Uh, so this is something that we do differently. We treat these patients uh, weeks to months at a time with antifungal antibiotics um, and with very good benefit. Is it, is it ever beneficial to have a fungal infection? Does it, it, is there a trade-off? Does it exclude other types of sickness or allergy or problems? I see. You know, that, that is, you know, probably an unexplored um, uh, area. It might be a, a good question to, to look into. So this, you know, when you think of the microbiome, we normally think of bacteria, um, but fungus is probably part of the microbiome as well. So what you're getting at is, is there a natural balance of fungus and bacteria, you know, one's intestines or the airway? And I really honestly would not be able to answer that question. Would eradicating certain types of fungus allow for more bacteria that otherwise are harmless, but then they can overgrow and lead to problems? That is a very good question. Uh, I'll just tell you, in my clinical practice, we've treated you know, hundreds of patients with antifungals. We've not observed um, a secondary bacterial pneumonia as a result of our treatment, at least not that we know of. There probably is a role for it in a person's microbiome, uh, but from our experience in patients who have allergies, at least, it's not the bacteria that's the problem. It's the overgrowth of the fungus that we've addressed. So far, we haven't, you know, secondarily caused a super bacterial, super infection, if you will, uh, by treating a fungal. Um, is there, um, 
medicine resistance in fungus just like in bacteria or no? There absolutely is. And that is one of the, the main concerns that we have when we treat patients with antifungals. So it's always something that we keep in the back of our minds to watch out. Um, we have to weigh the risks of resistance and the benefits of actually getting their asthma under control. Um, invariably, there will be resistance when you put a patient on long courses of uh, antifungal therapy, um, just like there would be with bacteria. So a couple of ways you could do, uh, a couple of things you can do to get around that is you hit them strong early on with multiple different classes of antifungal, um, or you treat them uh, over a long period of time in the hopes of eradicating uh, the infection. Uh, but we have had cases where a patient you know, down the line after months or years of treatment start to fail to respond to the usual, and that is a problem. This is why we reserve this type of treatment for the very severe asthmatics. We don't, we don't usually consider antifungals unless a patient referred to our clinic after many years of severe symptoms, they failed multiple different inhalers, allergy medicines, asthma medicines. So they've kind of been through the ringer, tried everything, and nothing's working. A lot of them are you know, uh, dependent on oral steroids on a daily basis, which has dozens of problems associated with that. Um, and the antifungals don't have those nasty side effects of steroids. So it's in our case, the patients that we get at the we get referred to as almost the last resort for a lot of these. So we think the risks um, for these patients oftentimes um, it is worth it, but that is something. Are there, are there people that have asthma that they have a fungal infection possibly, they just don't know it? And if they were diagnosed, maybe they could, you know, stop using an inhaler, for instance, possibly? I would say the majority of uh, patients with asthma, are, or, you know, maybe it's presumptuous for me to say the majority, but a large number of patients um, with asthma have a fungal infection, and they don't. Simply because this is not something that's currently recognized or accepted, or many allergies are not even aware of a problem. Um, it's controversial because the trials that have been done on using strictly antifungals in severe asthmatics um, have uh, had conflicting results. There was one, uh, two large trials, both of them are prospective, uh, randomized, placebo-controlled trials. So this is the highest level of evidence you can have with any trial. One was done about 10 years ago and used an antifungal called itraconazole, patients with severe asthma, they were sensitive to fungus, they were treated for four months, and the trial results was positive that it has a clear benefit in treating these asthma. A second trial came, a different group conducted it five years later, used a different antifungal, treated, in my opinion, sicker patients for a shorter duration of uh, time, and this trial had negative results. So there the two trials addressing the same problem, but they went about things uh, differently. The second trial, in my opinion, didn't do it properly, didn't treat the patients long enough. They had sicker patients, a lot of more smokers. That's why they had the negative results. Because of this, this is still controversial. So most clinicians do not put their asthmatics on antifungals unless they have the most severe of fungal-mediated asthma. It's a condition called allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. This is really an end-stage fungal asthma. It's only when a patient gets to that level when doctors actually start thinking of antifungals, which I think is actually uh, not appropriate uh, because these patients have been on a long road road down to this level and they should have been on antifungals many years uh, before. It makes sense. So <clears throat> clinically, what do people present like if they have a fungal problem? Is it any different than other problems? 
So, you know, there's different levels of asthma. Um, the current guidelines indicate that we rate asthma based on mild intermittent, which means these patients only occasionally have symptoms and all they need is maybe an albuterol inhaler once a week or something. And there's mild persistent, which means that these patients have daily symptoms, but they're easily controlled with a steroid inhaler. And then there are more severe forms of asthma, which we consider moderate and severe. So there's moderate persistent, severe persistent. Typically, the ones that benefit the most and really need the antifungals are in the moderate to severe persistent types of asthma. And these are patients that are requiring daily doses of inhaled steroids, perhaps a long-acting beta agonist. They're probably on allergy medicines like Zyrtec or Singular. And they get symptoms of shortness of breath, zing, coughing. They all produce a lot of mucus, especially when they're exerting themselves or first thing in the morning. It's usually green and thick mucus. Uh, they have mucus draining from their nose, down the back of their throat. Oftentimes, the mucus is so thick, it wakes them up in the morning and they aren't able to sleep. This is the type of patient that we see that's very typical. And we get their sputum and we culture it and... Um, a day or two later, big puffs of mold just come straight out of that sputum. It's yeah. undeniable. And we put them on antifungals for three months, and then, you know, miraculously, their sputum clears up, and nothing they've ever done in their lives has ever done that before. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very effective treatment uh, for the right type of patient. And again, what kind of patients would you suspect, before you even able to look at them, are more likely to have a fungal infection versus something else? Um, typically, uh, a patient that, you know, has a good clinical picture of asthma or chronic sinusitis, and oftentimes that's both uh, present. So an asthmatic um, asthma diagnosis is, is a diagnosis that made mostly on clinical grounds. There are certain confirmatory tests that we can run, like lung function tests and allergy testing, but if a patient... Um, otherwise healthy patient has no other lung conditions or heart conditions of coughing or wheezing, or they get short of breath when they're exercising or climbing up a flight of stairs. Um, they wake up, they wake up at night, short of breath or coughing or wheezing. You can pretty safely say they have asthma. If they're also coughing up a lot of mucus, um, probably eight or nine times out of 10, we are able to take that mucus, bring it to the laboratory and culture out fungus. Uh, chronic sinusitis is a different condition, um, similar in many ways to asthma, uh, but this is, a, in our opinion, a chronic fungal, something oftentimes bacterial infection of the sinus cavities and skull. These patients complain of a lot of nasal congestion, um, a lot of drainage of mucus down the back of the throats, a lot of coughing up of them. And um, oftentimes I'll get a CT scan of these patients that can actually show you very nice pictures of their sinuses, and you can actually see very clearly the chronic infection in these sinuses. And nine times out of ten, these guys will also have fungus growing in the. In the so, what's um? How does someone know if they have a problem? If uh, how do they find a practitioner who's willing to look at the possibility of fungus? I mean, you can't serve the whole country, so what can people look for? Well, you know, this is um. It's, very, it's difficult to, to find a practitioner that will be willing to put uh, a patient, uh, such as the ones I described on antifungal. They don't really teach this in medical school or residency or fellowship training. You know, when a physician thinks of an infection, typically 
They think oh, an infection has to cause fever, has to cause swelling of a tissue, it has to be life-threatening, you know, for in order for it to be considered an infection. Oftentimes, you will see these patients provide sputum samples. They send them to the lab, and it grows um, yeast or fungus, and they are often ignored because physicians think that this fungus is not causing any fever. There is no elevated uh, white count on the blood test, so it can't be an infection. We call it a colonizing. Uh, a pathogen is labeled as a colonization. People just ignore it. So you won't find a lot of physicians that will be willing to actually commit to this type of treatment because, you know, we're taught to ignore these culture results. But uh, this is, in our opinion, from the studies that we've done, uh, not appropriate. We don't ignore positive fungal cultures on these clinical tests, um, and uh, we, we will treat them aggressively. If a patient is interested um, you know, in having a consultation about this, and Baylor College of Medicine is probably one of the few places in this country um, that actually um, does work in, the, in this area that will actively treat patients um, that we believe have allergies that are driven by chronic fungal infection. Well, of course, culture dispute them first to confirm um, this uh, suspicion. And then if they're positive, uh, we will put the patient on treatment. Uh, the other major clinical site that does this is in the UK. So it's really just Baylor College of Medicine in the UK. I, I know of very few people that actually do work in this type of, this type of condition. When, when someone's on, on an antifungal, do they experience anything? or is it not too hard on them and they just feel like totally fine, all of a sudden they just have less problems? Uh, the, certain antifungals have um, more tolerable side effect profiles than others. Uh, the typical one we start off with is a medicine called terbinafine. You may have heard of the brand name. It's called Lamisil. We use it uh, typically for toenail fungus. That's what most doctors use it for. Um, but we utilize it a lot for chronic sinusitis and asthma. And this is um, very well tolerated for the most part. The worst side effects that I've seen are maybe just some nausea. Sometimes patients get a rash that's not very severe and that's self-limited and goes away after a few days. Um, the stronger antifungals, they're what we call the azole antifungal medicines, such as voriconazole or fluconazole or itraconazole. These have a bit of a more um, severe side effect profile. It can cause uh, heart issues, nerve issues. It can make you more prone to sunburns. Um, but, you know, there are precautions that we take. But for the most part, I would say, you know, 80% of patients tolerate these without any significant side effect. The one thing that's common to all of them is that they can all cause liver inflammation. So we always recommend that people abstain from alcohol when they're on fungals. And we do check a liver function test one or two weeks into the treatment to ensure that uh, the inflammation uh, is not too significant. 99 out of 100 times, there's no abnormalities whatsoever, and they can continue on with the treatment for weeks to months at a time. We don't need to check it again. But there are those odd cases where it does cause significant inflammation and we have to discontinue medication. Uh, this condition is self-limited. Once the medication is stopped, the liver inflammation resolves. I think you mentioned that antifungals seem to have a longer course than antibiotics. You know, antibiotics, I guess, 10 days, but I think you mentioned a few months. Is that the truth? Yeah, that, that's correct. And, um, you know, 
it's not true for all fungal infections, but the type of infection that we deal with, the chronic sinusitis and the asthma, in our experience and in the trial, the positive trials uh, that have been done, you know, it's really a, a 12 to 16 week initial course that you're really going to see any benefit. Um, these uh, organisms are very hardy. They're very difficult to get rid of. And you're breathing them in every single day, you know. A bacterial infection is different. Let's say you have a bacterial infection, like strep throat or something. Only a few, a few days of antibiotics is necessary because you're not going to be exposed to the strep bacteria constantly. Uh, but with fungus, it's a different story. It's constantly in the air. You're always exposed. And um, there's very few places that you can go that you're not exposed to the fungus. Well, why would it take so long to resolve it? Is it that you're, it's hiding from your body and your body doesn't see it as a foreign invader or... Like what, by what mechanism do you think it finally resolves? Um, and that's a, that's a good question. You know, one of the reasons, like I mentioned, is because of the constant exposure. You're always, you know, you, the antifungal you're taking is killing off some populations, but the very next day you just breathed in a little bit more. So that has to be continuously dealt with by the antifungal. Um, and uh, off, they're just not as susceptible to antimicrobials um, like bacteria are to antibiotics. Um, it's kind of like, you know, not all bacteria can be dealt with with a few days, kind of like tuberculosis. Um, these types of uh, bacterial infections of the lung take several months of multiple different antibiotics to, to cure. And uh, I don't exactly know the properties of these, these uh, fungi that make them so difficult to eradicate, uh, but that just seems to be the case. And not only for um, this type of infection that leads to asthma, sinusitis, but for full-blown what we call angioinvasive fungal infections. These are the fungal infections that all doctors take seriously. Like if you have immune compromise, if you have cancer or you're on high doses of immune suppressants and you get a horrible invasive fungal infection of your blood or your lungs or your brain. These patients need several weeks at least of IV antifungals. It just takes a long time to kill off these patients. Well, if you're still breathing them in though, yes. why and, and, would you kill yeah. them off? Why wouldn't they just come back? That's a problem and they do. They often do. So in our experience, um, there's a subset of patients with very severe disease and we give them a few months of antifungals. They get completely better, all right? And then we take them off. And then a few months or a couple of years later, they come back. Their symptoms have come back. They're breathing it in constantly, so they relapse invariably. Some people uh, get cured, and they never have a problem again. Others, they just have a relapsing, remaining course. They come back. We treat them. They get better. We stop. A few months later, they come back, and we have to start the treatment again. As long as they're continuously exposed, it's always going to be a potential problem. In and which conditions appear to um, <clears throat> appear more often to have a fungal underlying cause versus uh, versus not? Probably asthma and sinusitis. Um, and as allergists, we deal with a lot of uh, conditions, and not, you know, not all of them we can blame on. So I see a lot of patients that have a condition called urticaria, which is just they break out in hives. That's probably less to do with a fungal infection. Food allergies, I really don't think, has much to do with fungal infections. Um, drug allergies, uh, that's another condition that we, we deal with uh, on a day-to-day -day basis as well. So I would say asthma, sinusitis, 
And uh, also the other one is eczema. So the other term for eczema is atopic dermatitis. This is a very red, itchy, scaling type of rash that typically uh, children have. And there's a, there's a lot of work on this that uh, almost all but proven that this is a fungal infection, but very few people actually treat this with antifungals. The, the standard treatment for, that, for, for eczema is actually topical steroids, which in many cases actually probably leads to or allows for the persistence of the fungus that's actually the underlying problem. So again, <clears throat> you said Baylor is aware of this and in the UK, but you know, what, if, what about I mean, the millions of people or hundreds of thousands that have issues that are in Kansas or Florida or, you know, <clears throat> if, they, if they say to their, if they listen to this podcast, then they say to their allergist, hey, why don't you check for fungal causes? Do you think the allergist, you know, say, ah, that's not part of it? Or like, how could they, uh, I mean, is there a paper out there or what, what could they use to arm themselves so that they can get the, you know, potentially look into this for themselves? Well, you know, there are, there are many papers out there, um, and a lot of them have, have come from um, uh, Dr. Corey's uh, laboratory. Uh, I've written several papers on this, and I've mentioned one very large and important trial on this that was conducted 10 years ago. The problem is that the literature it has not been completely accepted. It's not part of the current practice guidelines that allergists use, right? We use guidelines to pretty much dictate what we do for patients. If it's not in the guidelines, no matter how much literature is out there, uh, this is going to fall through the cracks. So um, yes, a patient that's not you know, in our system, let's say Kansas, as you mentioned, they go to an allergist and they mention fungus. Well, if, they're, if you're able to test this patient and they come up, let's say, sensitive to fungus, maybe the allergist will consider an antifungal if this patient has severe enough disease, like very severe asthma, such as that condition that I mentioned, ABPA, or the sinus equivalent is something called allergic fungal rhinosinusitis. This is the end stage of a fungus mediatitis. At that point, I would say most allergists would consider an antifungal, or at least think about it, maybe not start, start it on every patient they see with that type of uh, presentation. However, in our research, we found that, you know, in all of our patients who tested positive to fungus in their sputum, less than 20% will actually have um, sensitivity that we can actually pick up on standard testing. So if these patients go in, even if they have a fungal infection and they test negative and they mention to their doctor, I think it's a fungal infection, um, unfortunately, the physician will probably blow off that consent. That, that's probably what's going to happen. Um, because there's just no evidence for it on the standard testing that, that they do. Now, they can send their sputum to a regular clinical laboratory like LabCorp and Quest, and I'll just tell you that most clinical labs are very bad at culturing fungus from a person's We have a technique um, in which we get very good yield, but you have to do it right. You have to actually break up the mucus to actually be able to culture out the fungus. Most laboratories... They just take the mucus and smear it on the plate. Well, the fungus is actually trapped in the mucus, and they're not going to get any. So they're very insensitive technique. Um, so they're not going to be able to culture the vast majority of patients with a fungal problem, unfortunately. So unless someone's in spitting distance, unintended of uh, a baler, <clears throat> it's going to be hard for them to get this uh, look into what's possibly going wrong. Right, and that's why we're we're always working on this. And and you know, my mentor, Dr. Corey. Um, 
is working very hard um, to constantly churn out data and literature on this. I'm working on a paper right now to show that uh, antifungals are very effective in chronic sinusitis. And uh, his ultimate goal is actually to conduct uh, another prospective randomized trial using antifungals on patients with uh, severe asthma, like the first positive trial uh, that was conducted uh, 10 years ago. Now, if we can get more and more trials like this, we can get the NIH on board with um, this idea and more high-impact, high solid evidence can come out of this, make it their way into the guidelines. That's how physicians um, will actually become accepting of this type of practice. But right now, we're, we're still pretty far from that, unfortunately. Okay, well, very good. Evan, what's the best way for people to learn more, you know, read your papers, you know, get in touch, that kind of thing? What do you suggest? Uh, well, um, the average, uh, you know, layman... Uh, can go on to uh, a website called uh, PubMed. That's P-U-B-M-E-D. This is what um, most uh, scientists and clinicians use. Uh, they can search my name on PubMed. You know, once they go to the front page, there's a search bar. They can type in Evan Lee. So my name's E-V-A-N. Last name is Lee. That's spelled L-I. And then I'll actually pull up a list of uh, publications that I've written. And they can look at all the, the work that... Some of the papers are available for free. Others, um, unfortunately, are not available for free, and you have to be a member of an academic institution to, to have access to them. They can, if they're interested, always email me at uh, eli at bcm.edu. I'll be happy to answer any questions. Uh, we do accept sputum samples from patients that are out of state, so all over the country, even the world. We get samples uh, from patients really all over the place. Uh, they just have to be able to spit up a good sputum sample into a nice clean cup or a Ziploc bag, save it in the freezer until they're able to deliver it to us, and uh, we can uh, we can always culture it. Um, they can deliver it to, to uh, my clinic, which is uh, 7200 Cambridge Street, Houston, Texas, 77030, and uh, our clinic is on the eighth floor. Suite 8A, so I can receive those samples there. I'll bring it to the laboratory. We can culture it up and we can provide the results. Um, we can even offer antifungal therapy. I can call it in. We can do long, long distance treatment if that's something the patient really wants to do. Uh, but I always recommend they seek treatment locally. They, uh, we can pictures have them send them to the regular doctor, discuss it with them. I can speak with their doctors and we can always talk about putting the patient on antifungals and I can guide that treatment. Well. So um, yeah, That's great. that would be the best way to, to reach me. Yeah. Well, very good, Evan. I'm glad that you're paying attention to more than just the standard. And uh, I appreciate all your wisdom and knowledge on this podcast. Thank you for coming. I, I really appreciate it, Richard. Uh, this has been a great experience. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. 